All right, we continue our journey through Galatians this morning. We are going through this amazing letter of Paul up through um, basically the beginning of the Easter season through Lent up until the end of March, week by week. What I'm hoping to do is cut a path through the forest, if you will, to help you understand what this amazing book and message of God is about. And to jump in this morning, I want to share with you another email that I received this past Last week, and just read it here to you today. Subject line, gospel plus one. I spent a lot of years thinking and believing that the gospel alone wasn't enough to help me overcome my struggles with overcoming my struggles and habit and habitual sin. I always thought the only way to overcome temptation was with willpower and personal strength. As if my willpower ever successfully helped me overcome my flesh and sinful nature. Thank you. I learned a lot today and I don't know exactly where to start, but I'll read the Gospels. I guess I have been deceived into thinking the Gospel alone was too easy. It almost sounds too good to be true. And that is the absolute heart of Galatians right there. That is the scandal even of the Gospel message right there. It is what Paul is trying to tell these believers, that what sounds too good to be true is actually true. Because what the letter of Galatians is about is the gospel. And most broadly put, the gospel is about what God does and what God did, not what we do. And to embrace anything different than that is to distort the very nature of God himself. To reject that gospel is to reject Christ. To add to that gospel is to add on to Christ. And as Paul will put it, if I can show you this passage here again that I showed you last week, to pervert the gospel, give it to me on the screen, this ain't working. To pervert the gospel, as Paul says it, is to pervert Christ. And what the people of Galatia, just like so many of us, were in danger of becoming were plus one perverts. Seeking to take the gospel message and add to it, and by that very nature, distorting the very essence of what it is. Now, I love how Paul opens this letter, and I think it's worthy of being read again. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one, God, Christ, the one who called you to live in grace and are turning to this different gospel, which is, it's not a gospel at all. And he says, guys, it's, it's like, I, evidently, some people they're throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Now, I'm going to try again on this thing because to make sense of the rest of this letter, there are three groups of people that you really kind of got to know. I mean, it's like the cast, if you will. These three groups of people that are central to the letter that Paul is writing. Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, and what we've just heard, some people. Let's talk through them. 
Jews are the chosen people of God. They trace their lineage, their family tree, to a man named Abraham who lived about 2,000 years before Paul wrote this letter. They saw themselves of the line, if you will, the lineage, the biological descendants of this man, Abraham. And after God had disinherited humanity in Genesis chapter 11, because of all of their sinfulness, he comes to this man named Abraham and says, I choose you. He says, I choose you. You could read this in Genesis 12, and I'm going to make you a great nation. And I'm going to give you many descendants and you will be great. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And maybe more significantly, and all people will be blessed through you. So basically what God does is after he disinherits humanity in the early history of the Bible, he chooses this one person and the people who are going to come from him. And he says, through you, I am going to show myself. I'm going to reveal myself to you. And by extension to the world, I'm going to show you what I'm like. I'm going to show you what I think. I'm going to show you how I am. I'm going to show you my plans for this world. I am going to entrust this to you and appoint you to be my agents, to bring to a world who has abandoned me and lost in confusion and groping in the dark the truth of who I truly am, not just in word, but also in deed. And Jews saw the main expression of this connection and understanding and revelation of God, if I can put it that way, to be through something that happened at a mountain called Sinai where the Bible records God came down in his glory and power and revealed to Israel not only who he is, but how he wanted them to live. You can read about this in Exodus chapter 19 where God shows himself. It says, I am the God who is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I am the God who has rescued you from Egypt. And if you will obey me fully and follow the ways of my covenant, you will be for me a holy people, a kingdom of priests, a treasured possession. And then God goes on to give them a blueprint of how to do life with him in this world. It starts with the Ten Commandments, but it goes on to about 600 more commandments after that that you can read in Exodus 20 to 40 in the Old Testament book of Leviticus and places throughout Numbers and Deuteronomy. God showing himself to a world otherwise lost and disinherited and groping in the dark. And for Jewish Christians, this was the key way that they had been connecting with God because this, this covenant, which gets called the Mosaic Covenant or simply the law, was like sacramental to them. This is how we know God. This is how we see God. This is how we connect to God. And so Jewish Christians were people who were Jews, lines 
and descendants of Abraham who loved and lived this Mosaic covenant and yet who came to see Jesus, a Jew, as God's promised Messiah, as the one who came to fulfill all the things that God had promised and for which they yearned and hoped. They came to see him as the savior of the world and God incarnate himself. These are the Jewish Christians, people like Paul, Peter, James, Barnabas. It's the first group you need to know. The second is the Gentile Christians. A Gentile is anyone who is not a Jew. These are the disinherited people that I mentioned earlier this morning. Parthians and Medes and Elamites, Mesopotamians and Cappadocians, Libyans, Cretans and Arabs, people from Cyrene, Romans, Greeks, as Acts 2 will put it, but also Chinese, Germans, Indians, Brazilians, Italians, especially Canadians, <laughs> Mexicans, and most people who live in America today. Examples of Gentile Christians and the book of Galatians would be Titus, or getting more contemporaneous, Steve, Andrew, Joe, me, the Pope, which by the way, I've never put myself in that close you know, juxtaposition with the Pope before, but I kind of enjoyed that. <laughs> David Crowder, and most people who are probably sitting around you today, these are people who were left to their own devices, people who did not receive the revelation of God. People who didn't come from what was handed down from generation to generation to generation about the truth of who God was, but were left groping in the dark, trying to figure him out by their own devices. The Roman philosophers and the, the Greek poets, people like Aristotle and Plato and Socrates but many more that would exist beyond there. It was the pagans who were embraced in polytheism of their day. Wondering, questioning, doubting, speculating, and grasping in the dark, going, who is this God? Because I sense there's something more. But who is he really? And these Gentile Christians were, well, in fact, Christians. Of these people groups who likewise came to see Jesus as the Messiah. As the one who came to fulfill the hopes and promises and yearnings of the heart that people have for God. Came to see him as the savior of the world and God incarnate among us. People who did not have a Jewish background, didn't follow the Mosaic law, didn't probably even know it or know what it is. Most of the Galatians that came to faith were probably Gentile 
Christians. So we have the Jewish Christians, we have the Gentile Christians, and now we come to what Paul mentioned as some people. Evidently, he says, some people are throwing you into confusion. And when you, when you hear some people, by the way, you, you got to give the right response here. You got to go, ooh. All right, let's try it. Some people, well, no, I did not say it yet. You ready? Some people. Okay, I, I don't know if I believe that, though. I mean, that, that, that felt more caricaturized. No, no. Ooh, right? Some people. Some people are throwing you into confusion, Paul says. Throughout Galatians, we see there are some people. You're going to do this the whole message now, aren't you? <laughs> Who are also Jewish Christians. Make no mistake, they are Christians. But they are Jewish Christians who are committed to God and pride themselves and love the connection they have with him through the Mosaic law. These people also came to see Jesus as the Messiah, the hope, the fulfillment, the presence of God himself. And yet, they seem to be wrestling internally with what that means for their identity and former connections. And they seem to be coming to these Galatians, telling them that what Paul told you is not enough. Paul may have gotten you started. Paul may have opened the door. But no, what you need to do now is add to that the Mosaic law to also follow the way that God had showed his people how to follow him and what he wants in this world for generation upon generation. That Jesus is good to begin with, but you need to add to it to experience the fullest expression of what it means to be a real Christian to what it means to be in him. Paul has some other language for these guys throughout the book. He'll call them infiltrators, agitators, the circumcision group, some men from James. At one point, he even calls them false believers. Because even though they professed a faith in Christ, their lives and beliefs showed that their faith in Christ was not enough. And as a result, perverting, distorting, abandoning, and losing the gospel. All of this is a setup. For where I'm going to take you now and what we're going to read Next, we're going to pick up with the story today at Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. Now, the bad news is unlike previous weeks, the volume of text I'm about to read to you is too much to put on the screen. But the good news is God has blessed you with phones. And so I encourage you to take out your phone or pull out a Bible and read the story with me, not out loud, but follow along with me. And let's see where Paul takes us in this journey next. Galatians chapter 1. We pick up at verse 11. 
And I'm going to put, thank you, this line on the screen. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters too, I want you to know that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I didn't consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem and got acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother, and I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Later, I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. But check this out, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. All right, now you got to respond rightly on that too. You ever, no, 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 come on now. These, <laughs> let's get our parts right. The response for Titus is very different. What Paul wants you to do at this point is this. What, what it would raise in your heart is this. I want you to imagine a moment when you have been given like, like just this epiphany of news, like, oh my gosh, is this for real? Is this going to happen? Oh my gosh, is this true? This is good. This is awesome. You know, like you're giving each other high fives. You're like, oh. You know what I mean? I need that kind of just like, like joyous outbreak. I remember I was teaching this religion class of middle schoolers and they thought we were going to go through actually some of the New Testament writings that day and what they had in mind was actually a surprise pizza party instead. And I said, let's open a Romans and you hear them go, ooh. <laughs> and after we turned there, I said, hi, I got you. We're going to have a pizza party instead. Oh, that's awesome. Because <laughs> that's fundamentally what it's about in life for us, isn't it? Did you know that feeling? Can you identify? Can you cross that over into your own plane of existence? I want to read that light again, that line again. But when I read it again, I need that kind of jubilation coming out of you. I need to see people standing up and high-fiving each other. I need to pe see people like fist-pounding it in the air. I need to hear people going, yeah, that, that's awesome. All right, can, can you do that today? Can you do that today? Don't do that. Here we go. Here we go. 
But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or I'd run my race in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Live in the joy of the Lord today. (laughs) This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seem to be important, whether they, whatever they are makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, They saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they should go to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. Not of human origin. That is Paul's entire point of this last chapter, the gospel message that I proclaimed and am bringing to you is not of human origin, but received and given to me directly by Jesus Christ himself. I didn't make it up. I didn't invent it. I didn't hear it. I didn't plagiarize it. I wasn't taught it. I didn't ruminate on the meaning of life and come to it. Jesus came to me and said, this is the truth. And go and be my witness to the people meant to be blessed by the people of Abraham and bring this good news to them. What Paul is doing in this travelogue This extended biography is more than just giving a testimony. We hear people give testimonies. People share how they come to faith in Christ. We actually do it here at Fellowship of Faith on quite a number of occasions. We call them God stories. Well, what Paul just gave you is his God story. But he's not giving it for general inspiration or to draw attention to himself. No, he's doing it to refute the claims of some people. (laughs) Of some people who are seeking to pervert the gospel of Christ. He refutes the idea that he invented it, 
No, Paul says, Jesus Christ came to me and I didn't go to Jerusalem. He's refuting the idea that he learned it. I didn't pick this up. It's not like I was taught this, but like, you know, it's kind of like a carbon copy. It got distorted in the generations. By the way, does anyone under 40 know what a carbon copy is? You know when you put something on like a copy machine and then you take that copy and you put that copy on the copy machine and make a copy and take that copy and put it on a copy machine and you know how it degradates over time? A carbon copy is how society existed before 1980 and it was a hundred times worse. (laughs) That happens though, doesn't it? Someone goes and they hear something. They learn something. They read something. They are taught something. And then they go to communicate it to you and it's just not quite right. It's been reinterpreted. It's been filtered. Not always intentionally, mind you. We're all guilty of this. But Paul will have none of it. This isn't something I learned, that I got wrong, that I distorted, that, you know, I kind of heard from Peter, James, and John and the church in Jerusalem, but I kind of stopped listening because I got bored after 10 minutes, and so I forgot the rest of the story. No, Jesus Christ told me this. I didn't even go and see Peter, James, and John. I went off with Christ into the wilderness, doing the ministry that he called me to do in Arabia, and Damascus. It wasn't until three years later, he says, that I finally circled back to Peter. And man, I was only with a brother for 15 days. No, 14 years later, I went back in response to another revelation, Paul says. Because I started to wonder, because of what I've been seeing these other people doing, whether I was running my race in vain. This gospel message I am preaching seems to be getting added onto and plussed one from here to there. I went to Jerusalem to set the matter straight. And you know what I found? Peter, James, and John, those reputed to be pillars, those who were those inner three of the apostles, and of course, Jesus' brother himself, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. They said, Paul, what you're preaching is true. Not that I needed to hear that. Not that I needed to hear that, Paul said, because Jesus Christ already told me. And whoever these brothers think they are, that doesn't matter or hold a candle to Jesus Christ himself. But you know what? They also confirmed it to be true, that the message I'm bringing to you, that what God did is enough, is what those who walked with Jesus are preaching as well, no matter how Jewish they happen to be. No, Paul is not just giving a testimony for testimony's sake. He is refuting the claims of those who are seeking to pervert the gospel by showing it is the message of Jesus Christ himself in full accord with the movement of those early Christians who were also proclaiming his name. Paul's testimony shows us what the gospel is. The work of God through the death and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. That is not just enough, but more than enough. More than you can ever imagine to be enough to bring you into fellowship with God and into his covenant people. To bring you hope and life 
forgiveness and grace to bring you new birth and restoration and renewal and a future with God himself. You know, when I reflect on this passage, there's two kinds of things that strike me, if you will, as I, I, I kind of try to bring it home today. And the first is this. How can you know if the gospel is true? Especially as that email that I opened up with would indicate that often it really seems too good to be true. Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever wrestled with that? But how do I know if it's true? I might want it to be true. I might dare to believe it's true but I'm banking my life on this. More, I'm banking my soul on this. I'm banking eternity on this. How can you know if the gospel is true? As I read these words of Paul in this letter to this church 2,000 years ago, I think that's what he's speaking into. You can know it's true because Jesus says it's true. Paul goes on, you can know it's true because it will be verified in your life that it's true. You heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, Paul writes. How zealous I was for the laws of God and how I was advancing beyond people of my own age. And yet what I saw and when I saw what Jesus Christ did in me, what he showed me and how it changed me, He'll do the same with you. And not only that, Paul says, the church showed it to be true. Those who followed him, the apostles, they verified it. Not that I was even looking for it, but if you need more evidence, there it is. Jesus said it's true. My life is a testimony to its truth. And it has been corroborated by person after person after person after person who walked and lived and bled and would come to die. For the name of Jesus himself. There's an ancient pastor by the name of Irenaeus. Writing in the second century was engaging in debates with the Greek philosophers and cynics and pagans of his day who kind of scoffed at the gospel and, and laughed at Christianity. Dismissed it as being, well, foolishness, if you will. He gave three reasons why he claimed to believe. And here's what he said. The three pillars that I base my life upon are this. The scriptures. Tradition handed down from the apostles. And the teaching of their successors. That we have the Bible. As an ancient witness to the ways of God. We have Jesus who embodies it, lives it, proves it, and demonstrates it. And those who come after him. 
bearing continual witness and evidence in their life and message to the veracity of his claims. The church would come to call this orthodoxy. The truth of the revelation of God himself passed down from generation to generation to generation by which we can plant our feet and a certain hope and stability of belief. But I think of this as well. What does the travel history of an apostle have to do with me? It might be an interesting journey of a man who lived 2,000 years ago we might be able to glean inspiration from it or come to believe Paul's message more or even glean some insights for ourselves, but I think it's more than that. I think the story of Paul's life is meant to be our story as well. Do you know that with the Bible, by the way? That this book is, is meant to be more than just information but something that you come to identify with it, that its story becomes your story. This is why Jews, for centuries and even millennium, to this day will say things like this, our father Abraham. Or when we were in the garden and ate of the fruit of the tree. Or when God brought us out of Egypt. Do you think that way? Do you identify with him that way? Do you see its story as an integral part of your story as well? Paul's story, in a way, is our story as well. As we struggle with the radicalness of the gospel, as we come to see the amazing good news that God has come to bring, as we come to believe something that the world says is too good to be true, as we face challenge, persecution, pushback, as we navigate how to do life together with others who claim the name of Jesus as well. What I love about Paul's story is it demonstrates two things. It demonstrates his absolute personal relationship with Christ. And yet simultaneously, his collaboration and fellowship with the body of Christ as well. I know so many Christians who have this mentality that Christianity is about Jesus and me. It's just Jesus and me. And whatever other Christians have to say, whatever other Christians are gathering around, whatever the church claims or wants to be, it's kind of secondary, it's kind of peripheral. No, because it's just me and Jesus, Jesus and me. But that's not what you see. You see a deeply, intensely personal relationship that Paul has with Christ. And yet, he collaborates and works in fellowship with the body as well. Together. On the other hand, I know so many Christians 
who are absolutely dependent on what a pastor has to say, on what the church is doing, on what groups they're offering, on what the worship service is going to move me to, as though there's no ability to connect with Christ on their own apart with what others are going to do for me. That's also not what I see. Because I see in Paul a man who connects with Jesus personally, who's birthed out of the people of God, enjoys fellowship with the people of God, collaborates with the people of God, works and struggles with the people of God, yet is not completely dependent on the people of God for his spirituality. He takes ownership of it for himself. Even if it means standing on his own two feet over and against what's going on around him. I think there's a model here, if you will, in the journey of this Apostle Paul of what it means to be a follower of Jesus personally and communally. Jesus and me Jesus and we, not pitting one against the other. And so we see Paul continuing to write to these, this, this fledgling group of Gentile Christians who came to believe his message and are now filled with doubt and confusion. Once again, helping them to see You can believe the gospel. It's good and even better than true. It's good and you, fellowship of faith, can believe it too. Christ revealed it. The people of God have lived it. And God will transform you by it. Not by what plus ones you bring to the table. So we'll leave it there this week. And pick up next Sunday as we see Peter and Paul go head to head.